The book of Philippians, if you didn't know this, um, was really the church at Philippi is considered Paul's what we call joy and crown. It was his favorite, as near as we can tell, his favorite church insofar as this. It's the church that caused the least amount of trouble and possibly no trouble at all. There were times when he had to defend things, and we're going to talk about that tonight, and he had to deal with issues, but those issues were always external in the church at Philippi as opposed to internal. The church at Corinth, by contrast, was a church that had a lot of internal squabblings, a lot of internal fightings, a lot of internal challenges. It was not an easy church for Paul to lead and have apostolic authority over, but the church at Philippi, it's a great church. And in the church at Philippi, there was something happening in every church in the New Testament, and really, well, every epistle that we would read about. There were two problems that were coming in. One of them was Gnosticism. That was not the issue. Gnosticism was a group of men that said they had special truth that only they had, and you had to come and talk to them, and they would tell you what that truth is all about. And you would read about Gnosticism in the general epistles of First and Second Peter, First and Second, Third John, Jude. You would read about it in those passages or in those chapters. But in this, in this book of Philippi, Paul is dealing with a super important issue. He's dealing with Judaizers. And Judaizers is just a really big word that means this. It's a group of people that were Jews that said essentially this, because we are Jews, we are better than you. Because we were born Jews, we are more saved than you could ever be saved. And as a matter of fact, they were making this bold claim that our salvation is not dependent on the work of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is dependent upon our pedigree, and we are just way better walkers with God than you could ever be because we are Israelites, we are of the people of Israel, and you have no idea how bad you have it and how good we have it. And that's really what Paul is talking about in this chapter, not the whole chapter, not the whole book, but in this chapter that we're going to look at, Jude chapter, or Jude, if you're in Jude, we're in trouble, Uh, Philippians chapter 3. And so Paul is writing here, and he's giving in verses 1 through 3, he is giving us an understanding and helping us to understand that. We're going to read verse 4. I'll have you say in just a second. But in verses 1 through 3, he's dealing with, and a little bit in 4 and 5, he's dealing with the reality that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, we're, we'll talk about the gospel a little bit, and Pastor talked about it earlier, or Pastor Chapel did. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul is talking about the gospel in verses 1 through 3, and that salvation is available, salvation is for everyone, salvation is not exclusive, and he's making an attorney's argument. He was an attorney by training and by trade, and, and he is making that, that defense attorney position for the gospel, and Paul is writing here. We then come through the rest of verse number 3, and Paul is going to talk about the reality of living a life, and this is what we're going to look at tonight, of living a life that has meaning and value when your life is over. A life that has meaning and value when your life is over. In other words, I've titled the message this, the unwasted life. The unwasted life. 
Pastor and I, he shared this illustration not too long ago or with Pastor Chapel earlier tonight. And on Saturday, we were on outreach together and we're going down a street. And whenever I do outreach, I just try to get into the, the flow of the community. I just want to see where I'm at. I try to get to know as many people as I can. I high five people. I help ladies bring their groceries in. Uh, I, people say, hey, can I give you some money? I take their money. And I'm kidding. I don't do that. I, I would, though, if you offered. Um, but I, I, I just tried to get in the flow, and, and I was putting flyers on the door, and there were three guys outside, three big Hawaiian men that were out there. They're big when I feel small around them. When I feel small around them, I know I'm either in Fiji or they're just big men. And, and I was outside, and I, I looked, and they had these really long shovels. I said, hey, what are you guys doing? And they told me they were digging a hole for new telephone poles. And they were, they were digging the hole and putting the dirt in this big white bag. And they had, after some conversation, I found out that the shovels were 14 feet long. And so I said, well, don't you have like an auger that would do this like really quick, like you'd stick it in? Because I'm just thinking in San Diego, that's how we do it. You know, you stick an auger in. And they said, well, we have too many uh, utilities underneath there. And if we put the auger in, it might, you know, rupture a power, gas meter, water. And I'm like, oh, that makes total sense. And so I, I understood that. And, and, and I looked and they're just digging. I said, how deep is this hole? They said, it's six feet you can't see to the bottom of a six-foot hole. I looked in there, and I tried to see, and I'm like, I can't see it. And they're digging, and they got a 14-foot shovel, and it's just got a blade on the end of it, and they just beat up the dirt. And then they got another shovel that has a 90-degree head on it, and they scoop the dirt out, and then they dig, and they scoop the dirt out. And, and I said, how many of these will you do? They said, oh, here in town, the dirt is really soft. We can get three or four in a day. But they said in some other part of town, we might only get a few inches done in a day. And I was like, wow, a few inches in a day. And I asked them this question. I said, or pastor asked him this question. He said, how long have you guys been doing this? Because I'm thinking I'm not going to do this job very long. And they said, 14 years. Now, here's where pastor and I are different. I walked away thinking, man, I bet there's no stress when you just dig holes all day long. That's a stress-free life. You wake up in the morning. You don't have to make decisions about anything. You just know you're digging a hole today. You go to bed at night knowing tomorrow you're going to dig a hole. All you're going to do is dig a hole. You don't really have to measure anything. Just dig a hole. And the big deal of the day is don't hit a gas line. That's, that's your big issue of the day. That's it. This is what Pastor King said to me and rebuked me. Oh, my word. He said, can you imagine at the end of your life going, I dug a lot of holes. I began to think, it's really how a lot of people live their life. Maybe it's not hole digging, but it's something like that. And Paul addresses that in this passage. If you found Philippians 3 verse 4, would you stand with me? There was a group of men, again, attacking the Apostle Paul, Judaizers. He talks about beware of dogs and evil workers in verse number 2. In verse number 4, he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the, of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee concerning zeal, 
persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God, by faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, we're not going to talk about it probably too much, but the Bible does not say the fellowship of his suffering. The plurality of that word has huge implications. The fellowship of his sufferings. People say, I don't know why it's hard to be a Christian because you can't fellowship with his suffering. You're called to fellowship with his sufferings. It's just powerful. I'll probably mention it again, but man, it convicts me every time I read it. The fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. There's a semicolon there, so we'll read verse 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Lord, bless your word. Use it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We ought to ask ourselves the question at times, what is an unwasted life? I would assume if you were to look at the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, you would think that these were great men, but did you know that most of them, the average age of the signer of Declaration of Independence was 40 years old over all of those men that signed it? The 56, the average age was 40 years old, and that was with one being 80 and Benjamin Franklin being 71, which would have thrown the scale off quite a bit. Many of those men were younger than 30 years old and signed really, and they knew it when they signed it. They would have a price of 5,000 pounds put on their head. They knew that it would cost them their life, and that's what it did for most of them. Five were captured by the British as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons to the, in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two of their sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds and hardships resulting or resulted in, because of the Revolutionary War. These men signed and they pledged their lives. They pledged their fortunes. They pledged their sacred honor. These men were well-to-do men. It wasn't like they had nothing else to do. 24 were lawyers and jurists. 11 were merchants. 9 were farmers and plantation owners. All of these were men of means. They were well-educated men. They were men that did not need to sign the Declaration of Independence for any personal profit. They were already doing very well all on their own. I think one of the most inspiring examples of the undaunted resolution is the battle at Yorktown that we would read about. And a man by the name of Thomas Nelson Jr. was returning from Philadelphia, and he was on his, he was the governor of Virginia, and, and he had joined Washington just outside of Yorktown, and, and he had lived just outside of Yorktown, and Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson Jr.'s home as his headquarters, and as Nelson Jr. rode up on the Constitutional Army and the Revolutionary Army, he saw that they were battling in Yorktown, and, and they 
Revolutionary Army was firing all over Yorktown, but they would not fire on the headquarters of Cornwallis. And so Nelson Jr. went to General Washington and he said, Sir, why are you not firing on the headquarters of General Cornwallis? And Washington said, Sir, in respect to you, that is your home. And Nelson Jr. said, Rubbish, I want you to fire on my home. And as the story is told by historians, they got into an argument right there on the battlefield until Thomas Nelson Jr. pushed Washington to the side, ran over, grabbed a cannon, loaded the cannon, a cannon, aimed the cannon at his own house, lit the fuse, and blew the first hole into General Cornwallis's headquarters, Thomas Nelson Jr.'s home. After that happened, the men leveled his home. It was quite humorous, I guess, if you have a distorted sense of humor like I do. The end of the Revolutionary War, Thomas Nelson Jr. died a pauper. I would submit to you, though, dying a pauper and sacrificing greatly, we still, we understand this great reality that he lived, Thomas Nelson Jr., an unwasted life. As we come to our text of scripture, I would submit to you that the cause of freedom and relationship to our revolution and the, 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 the cause of freedom and the, the, the cause of capitalism, I would submit to you that there's something far greater than whether or not we live free or in a totalitarian society. And uh, I, I would submit to you that there's something greater than being a capitalist or a communist. I would submit to you that the greatest life that is to be lived is a life lived for the cause of Jesus Christ. And a true unwasted life is a life that is lived for eternity as opposed to a life that is lived for today. And we see in Paul's life some key characteristics to an unwasted life. He says in verse number four, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he, what he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. I want you to notice tonight the qualities of a life that is not wasted is a life that is not concerned about a promising future. A life that is not concerned about a promising future. The Apostle Paul says, hey, if anybody here, if any of these Judaizers who are talking about their pedigree and they're talking about, about being a Jew, if any of them are talking about what they have to offer and what they had to look forward to, if any of them are wanting to talk about it, the Apostle Paul says in verse number four, I'm more. They could talk about their flesh. They could talk about their pedigree. They could talk about their life. But whenever you wanted to, this is what Paul is saying, whenever you want to talk about in relationship to your life, to your background, and the promise of your future. Paul says, I could talk more about it than you can. I had a more promising future than you had. This is what Paul is saying. My future, Paul is saying, was better and brighter than any of the Judaizers. It's a powerful statement. And this wasn't just some guy that came up with it. These are the inspired words of God. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say this. Now, if I say that to you, that's going to be arrogant. But if it's in the Bible, it's true. And Paul says, if you want to look at the greatness of lives, my life is better than any of those guys, or had the potential to be better than any of those guys' lives. But you know what he did? He wasn't concerned about that. He wasn't concerned about it. Notice what else, verse number five 
He was not concerned with social status. He said, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of Hebrews as touching the law, a Pharisee. Now, in social pedigree, Paul was at the top of the list. It would be like if you said, oh, they're part of the Vanderbilt family or the Rothschild family or the Kennedys. Maybe in Hawaii there's a family name that would be very, very well known on the mainland. Those would be very popular names. Oh, you're one of them. Oh, your family has tremendous status. Listen to how listed his status. He was circumcised the eighth day. That is in exact compliance with the law. If there were any ground for confidence in such compliance with the law, he had it, and this is what it meant. It meant that Paul's parents were faithful to the temple. Paul's, Paul's dad was a faithful Pharisee, that Paul's granddad was a faithful Pharisee, that they had a lineage of faithfulness, and Paul says, I was circumcised the eighth day, just exactly like God commanded him to be. There was no ifs, ands, or buts. It's Genesis 17, 12 talks about it, Leviticus 12, 3, Luke 1, chapter, uh, Luke 1, verse 59, about Jesus Christ. I mean, it was phenomenal for this to happen. And a lot of people wanted to be circumcised the eighth day, but often due to sickness or travel restrictions or whatever, health issues, whatever the case may be, babies often, young male babies were often circumcised maybe the seventh day, circumcised the ninth day. This is a major point that Paul is talking about because in the Jewish culture of that time, this was a, this was a milestone, a keystone, a hallmark moment for a person to be circumcised the eighth day. Paul says, I'm of the stock of Israel. He descended from the patriarchs of Israel. He descended from the patriarch of Israel, who is Jacob, and therefore can trace his genealogy as far back as any Jew could. This was before Titus, the Roman general, comes in and ransacks Jerusalem and destroys all of the... Um, the records of, of heredity and family lineage, it's destroyed. In Paul's life, Paul says, I'm able to trace my lineage all the way back to Jacob, who is Israel. In other words, he says, I can tell you who my grandfather was. I can tell you my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather. To do the math, Paul says, we can trace our lineage, my family. Paul's saying here, I can trace my family 4,000 years two to 4,000 years, all the way back to Jacob, and we can name you every single male child in the family. To Jews, this is huge. So when Judaizers are coming in and they're saying, hey, we can tell you great things, we can tell you amazing things, and we're great Jews. Paul is just saying, I want you to know something. When it comes to social status, I got it. He says, not only do I have it because I was circumcised the eighth day and of the stock of Israel, I'm also of the tribe of, of Benjamin. Benjamin was the blessed tribe. It was a highly honored tribe. It was Benjamin was Jacob's only son that was born in the promised land. Benjamin was the son of Jacob's favorite wife and it held a post of honor among the armies of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin was located near the temple. Benjamin gave Israel their first king and King Saul, the man who was probably the namesake of Saul, whose name God later changed to Paul. Paul had it. 
And then he closes this concept of his social pedigree down that he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. He enjoyed all the benefits of being a Hebrew. He could trace his ancestry all the way back to the patriarchs. There was no... Listen, now, this is their world in which they lived. It's different in our day, but this is the culture in which they live. There was no Gentile blood at all in the Apostle Paul. My in-laws got for me one of those ancestry tests. They got it for me for Christmas last year. It's still sitting on my dresser. You say, why is it still sitting on your dresser? Because you have to go 30 minutes without eating or drinking anything, and... I just just haven't done that yet. I just normally think about it while I'm drinking coffee, and then I kind of forget about it. But I have a feeling that if I took that test, that there would be a lot of Gentile blood in me. Matter of fact, I could guarantee you there would be. From I'd probably probably 1,224% of something or 24ths of something. There's probably a lot of mixture in me. And this is what Paul is saying. I'm 100% Jew. I'm a Hebrew. My dad, my mom, my granddad, my grandmom, my great-granddad, my great-grandmom, all the way back, all the way back to Jacob and Rachel. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, we're reading this going, what's the big deal? But remember when you, when you read the Bible, you got to put yourself in the culture of the day to get the big idea that God is trying to convey for the day. And so God is trying to convey through Paul this idea that, that social pedigree is of very little concern. And Paul says this, and I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says in other places. He strictly followed the law. Not only did he have a great pedigree, but he was a great follower. He was the spiritual man. He had the background. I mean, Pastor Chapel, his dad was a preacher. His granddad was a preacher. I think he can trace preachers all the way back to Jesus and his family. It's touching the law of preacher. And he can go, that's why he says all these things. I'm like, wow, it's so profound. I didn't even know that was a word when he talks. It's amazing. That's what Paul's like. I got the social status. Notice what else Paul says in verse number six. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I want you to know that Paul wasn't concerned about his past failures. Now, it has to be noted that for most, their past failures are more of a detriment to the work of Christ than their present success. Their past failures are more of a detriment to the work of Christ than their present success. Paul says concerning zeal, these Judaizers just want to talk about how great they are in their walk with Christ, how determined they are, how faithful they are, how committed they are to the walk of Christ. This is what Paul says. He says, hey, if you want to talk about zeal, zealousness for Israel, zealousness for Judaism, he said, let's talk about that. I persecuted the church. Now, the word persecute's a really interesting word. It's obviously Paul is using it in the past tense, but it's one of those words that when he is using it in the past tense, he's explaining something that he was actively doing at the time. And the word persecute means this. It's more of a word picture that, that we get from it. It has two ideas. One of them is of an army, like a military group, 
in Paul's day, would have been the Romans, maybe chasing down some bandits, and they were in hot pursuit. They're pursuing. It's the idea of chasing down someone that is an enemy. The other idea is a hunting idea. See, in Paul's day, in the New Testament day, they didn't really do like tree blinds and feed the deer and have them come into a ranch and, and put them in a pen and put a collar around them and tie the deer down and then shoot them. They actually would chase them. They would pursue them. Or a wild animal would pursue and stalk maybe an animal of prey. Like maybe you've seen the Nature Channel. My wife doesn't like to watch it, so I watch it all the time. Um, I really do. She's like, it just scares me. So I'm like, well, let's give you something to dream about. And, but you see a lion and it's crouching down and it sees maybe a gazelle or a, a native deer to its land and it's just standing there waiting and it's slowly walking and pursuing. That's the idea. And Paul says, this is what I did. I pursued the church with the whole idea of destroying the church. We know that he had people arrested. We know that he threw people in prison. We know that he had people killed for nothing other than their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, can I tell you this? That I think the Apostle Paul looks back at his life and, and he says this, about his own zealousness. The scripture says this about his own zealousness. The idea of, a, of an animal that is being chased by another animal is the same word, uh, periskos, in Acts chapter 8, verse number 3, Acts chapter 9, verse number 1, Acts chapter 22, verses 4 and 5, Acts 26, 9 to 11. The apostle Paul is talking about the failures of his past. Every time I preach at church, it's, it's a burden in my soul because I understand there's a lot of people who say things like this. If I could do it all over again, I would. How many of you would do things differently if you could do things differently? How many of you would look at your life and go, yeah, I wouldn't have made that decision. I wouldn't have said those words to a family member. I, I wouldn't have done that to my parents. I, I wouldn't have ran from the Lord in that area. I wouldn't have pride in that area. I'd do it all over again if I could. I'd do it very, very differently. Paul says, I can't, I can't live in the past. The jacked up nature of your past is not to keep you jacked up in the future. It's to keep you dependent on the work of Jesus Christ and the grace that he gives you. Can I stop and just say there are some folks in here that every time you look in the mirror, you see yourself as a failure because that marriage failed and it was your fault? That friend and that relationship is broken and it was your fault? There's a severed parental-child relationship and you're the reason? and you've tried to resolve it, and you've tried to rectify it, and you've tried to do it all, and that thing is keeping you from moving forward for Christ. Can I tell you, if anybody was to be depressed about their past, the Apostle Paul was somebody who should have been depressed about his past. He's literally throwing people in prison. He's literally having people murdered for their faith. 
We're not talking that he sued people for their faith. We're talking he had carte blanche authority, complete immunity to literally take people's land, possessions, jobs. The Bible says, Jesus says this in the Gospel of Matthew, that you will be stripped naked and set to flight in the mountains. I'm not a medical doctor, but when you're naked in the mountains and it gets cold, that's bad. Just going to make that assumption. That's really bad. And the Apostle Paul did all of that. And you know what he didn't do? He didn't let his messed up past keep him from serving God. Now, this is kind of a military church. As a matter of fact, all of the churches represented here tonight are military churches. Pastor Chapel, pastor's a, a Marine church, and a lot of Marines there at Camp Pendleton, and you, we have the, the, the best branch. We have mostly Navy in our church, uh, haze gray and underway, win the day every day. That's the way we are, and, and we praise God for that. You guys, have, you guys have some Navy guys. We praise God for that. You have some Army guys. We thank the Lord for that. You have some people in the Air Force, and we're fine. Uh, <laughs> We're okay with that. I mean, it's a, it's a branch, and so is the Coast Guard, I, uh, I guess. But you, but you have that. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be funny for what I'm about to say. Here's what I know. There's a lot of things in the past of guys who were single in the military that you're like, God could never use me because of what happened however many years ago, however many months ago, however many days ago. Can I tell you when God forgives you, he forgives you completely. Can I remind you that the grace of God is greater than your sin? Can I remind you about the, the, the truth of the fact that when the blood of Jesus Christ was spilt on Calvary, he put all sin as far as the east is from the west. Somebody asked me one time, Pastor, where did the sin go that Jesus washed away? He just washed it away. Well, where did it go? He washed it away. Well, Pastor, it had to go somewhere in the, in the economy of God and the sovereign plan of an omnipotent God. It just dissolved for all of eternity as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more don't let your past failures determine your future service and then we see in verse 7 to 10 and this is where we'll spend just a few minutes tonight we see that an unwasted life is a life consumed with Christ it is a life consumed with with Christ. I remember one time I was on outreach in our town and I was knocking doors and I came up on a guy and he had a 1937 Ford and it had flames on the side and he had totally rebuilt his a beautiful car. It was black and it was just cool and he had chopped the window down a couple of inches so it had kind of that, that cool like, uh, you know, 1930s gangsterish type look of a car and he would take it to car shows and I just walked up and I introduced myself. He was an older guy and we talked and I said, tell me about your car. I said, I've been building this thing my entire adult life. He goes, it's my baby. And he touched it like it was his baby. He's like, isn't she beautiful? And I was like, well, I guess she is. I mean, Angela said to me the other day, wasn't he just a handsome man? And I just said, Angela, I'm never going to agree to that statement. I'm just never, as long as I live, I will never say he was a handsome man. I'll say he's loved Jesus. I'll say he's smart. I'll say he's ugly. But I will not say dude is handsome. I'm just not going to do that. I feel odd just with those words coming out of my mouth. So when he says, isn't she beautiful? 
You've personalized your car more than I have. All right, yeah, she's beautiful. There you go. And then we began to talk, and his entire life was wrapped up in the car. The car is more important than his wife. The car is more important than his kids. The car was more important than anything. His life was his baby, and his baby was an old Ford car. Notice what Paul says in verse number 7. It's powerful. But what things were gained to me... What was gained upon? Let me stop. We didn't talk about this. We have this in other passages, but for the sake of time, we won't look at them. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul was not yet on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court of the day, uh, but there were 70 members. It was mostly Sadducees, which had been theological liberals. Paul was a Pharisee, a theological conservative, but Paul was predicted or, or planned to be the Sadducee and the leader of the Sadducees. Paul was going to be an amazing leader. The leader of the Sadducee was one of the most powerful men in all of Israel, but he was also one of the most profitable men in all of Israel. Every year during the temple, the leader of the Sadducees made just on tourism in Israel because they jacked up the prices of, of the doves and the, and the money exchangers and all of that. His cut on that, we're told by historians, was somewhere between modern day money, 10 to $11 million every year just for that one event. There were many other things that would have went on, but that just that one thing. So Paul had power, he had prestige, he had money, he had all that in verse number seven. And he says, and what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ in the word counted just simply means considered that's that's this is Paul saying I could have got a lot of things I could have attained to a lot of power I could have had a lot of prestige but I consider them loss I consider it just loss I consider it a, a, a debit in the, in the journal of life, in the spreadsheet of life. It just goes in the loss column. It's not to be thought about anymore. I could have been wealthy. I could have been powerful. I would have been well-known. I would have been well-loved. I would have been respected. People would have thought great things when I walked down the street. People would have stood in awe of me. They would have respected me. They would have bowed their heads to me. They would have come up and, and, and sat down. They, they would have, here's the idea, they would have even worshipped me. They would have fallen and thrown kisses in the air as I walked by just that's what they would have done because that's what they did to all the leaders of the Sanhedrin and Paul says and I just consider it a loss in the ledger of life well he says indeed doubtless I count all things but loss now remember I said this last time I was here that in Hebrew writing they didn't have exclamation points you couldn't write an exclamation point to draw emphasis the way they drew emphasis in the Hebrew writings was to double state or triple state something so Paul says I counted it lost for Christ yea doubtless or without a doubt is what he is saying without a doubt I count and the word used again same word I consider all things but loss again he's using that word again for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord he said hey I want you to have special understanding I want to I want to make sure you don't lose this point that everything I could have had it's like he's jumping up and down I consider that loss well Paul why do you consider it loss that I could know more about Jesus my Lord that I could know more about Christ 
You mean to tell me, Paul, that you'll give up the power, the prestige, the prominence, the profit? You'll give all of that stuff up? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give that up so that I could win Christ. It's like he's saying, or that I may know Christ. It's like he's putting a bunch of exclamation points after it. I just This is what Paul's saying. I just want you to know that I will give everything up. He goes on to say, I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. Why? That I may win Christ. I'll give it all up. Why? Just so I could win Christ. The word win does not denote the idea of salvation because you can't earn Christ. This verse is not, verse number eight, nine, is not a, what's called salvific. It's not salvific in nature. It is sanctifying in nature. It is setting apart. It is separated. It deals with holiness. And Paul says, I count everything that I had but lost, special emphasis, why? That I could win, attain, or draw closer to Jesus Christ. I can't do anything to earn salvation, but I can do a whole lot to be sanctified. Did you hear me? I can't do anything to earn salvation, but I have to do a whole lot to be sanctified. And so Paul says, I give all of this up that I may win Christ. And this is how I want to be found. I want to be found in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. I I don't want to be found... I don't want when Jesus finds me for me to stand before him and say, look what I've done, Lord. Look at me. Look at who I am. Look at all the things that I've done. This is what Paul is saying. He goes, no, no, I I don't want any of that. I'm going to give everything up for Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 10. Again, he's double stating this. He's drawing, the Holy Spirit is drawing special attention to this that I may know him. The word knows, the Greek word gnosis. The idea is one of knowing on a deep level that I may know him. And the power, the word power is the word dunamis, where we get our word dynamite from, and the power of his resurrection Pastor Chapel said something earlier about this res- the resurrection. Never heard it put that way. Our apologetic does not start in Genesis trying to prove Christ. Our apologetic starts in Revelation, or, or in the resurrection, rather, and working out from there, giving evidence as to who Christ is. What a powerful thing that I may know him. And the dunamis, the explosive power, that's what the word means, of his resurrection. Now here's what we'll focus and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The word fellowship here, now here, when we use fellowship, tell the truth, this is what we mean when we use the word fellowship. If you're in the mainland, this is the idea of fellowship. It's you're gonna go to a dank basement in the church and you're gonna eat weak cherry Kool-Aid and stale cookies. And we had fellowship, and we named it a fellowship hall. How many of you have ever been to one of those? Like when they say, hey, we're going to have fellowship, everybody in the room goes, oh, that's a bummer. (laughs) 
I don't want to go to the fellowship hall. It's like I'd rather have detention than go to the fellowship hall. I just hate the fellowship hall. There's nothing fellowship about it. The coffee stinks. The Kool-Aid stinks. The place stinks. Get me out of the fellowship hall. We have one in our church. When it was built, they built the fellowship hall. What have we done with it? We made it into a game room for teens. We don't let old people down there. You say, why don't you let old people down there? Number one, we're afraid they'll never get out. You say, what happens if teens don't get out? Eh, we can get more of them. Uh, we've made it into that. We have, but that's what we think of fellowship. It's like, hey, we'll just sit together and we'll just talk and you'll tell me your burdens and I'll tell you my burdens and we'll cry and, and we'll hug and we'll fellowship. Come on, tell the truth. I'm not, that's what the idea. We need to sit around and have fellowship. Am I off? I'm not, I'll amen myself. I have no problem. You say, well, that sounds arrogant to me. No, I'm right, and that's just the way it is. <laughs> Maybe it's a little bit of arrogance. I have no idea, but it's true. It's, it's what we do. Like, uh, we had fellowship. That's I did fellowship. We get so tired of that. People can't come to church because they're having fellowship. Like, who? Here's what the word fellowship means, right? It's the Greek word koinonia. The word koinonia doesn't mean go to a dank basement and drink bad Kool-Aid. That's not what it means. The word koinonia means to participate together. That I may know him, verse number 10, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Here, here listen to me. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is legitimately saying this. I want to participate in the suffering of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to tell you, if I had never read that, you would never hear those words come out of my mouth. I am not one who enjoys pain. I'm just not. Pastor King, I told you on Sunday night, I hate 6 a.m. workouts. I have worked out 6 a.m. both Monday and Tuesday. This cross is more than I can bear, I'm just telling you. Yesterday, as I left the gym, Courtney, who was here on Sunday, pray for her to be saved, and her boyfriend, pray for them to be saved. Man, I just love those guys. They're such great people, but I really want them to be in heaven with us. And as I left the gym, she said, hey, Chris, just so you know, we have a 5 a.m. class tomorrow. And I thought, and I said, okay. And she goes, Anthony will be here. And I said, good for him. <laughs> she goes, don't you want to come? And do it with him? You know, she was asking, don't you want to come and koinonia with him? Don't you want to participate with him? I said, no, I'm going to be in the basement drinking Kool-Aid at 5 a.m. <laughs> Not a chance that I'm going to get up in the morning at 5 a.m. And I showed up this morning at 6 a.m., because I was wanting to fellowship with that suffering. And I looked at him, and he looked all haggard and homeless and ragged. I'm like, bro, where'd you sleep last night? Right there? And he's just like, look at this workout over here. We had to run, running at 5 a.m. Somebody better be breaking into your house at 5 a.m. for me to run. I'm telling you, not a chance am I doing that. But, but I don't know what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> participation Paul said I want to fellowship in the sufferings I want to participate in the sufferings I just think about that for a second we got a little bit of time think about that for a little bit just a second in a world that doesn't want any suffering 
don't we struggle with the idea of a willingness and an anticipation to suffer? I don't know how it is on Hawaii, in Hawaii. I can tell you on the mainland that often people are like, Pastor, something's got to be done in this world. Something's got to be done. People will come to our church, and, and that's the thing that I often hear. Something's got to be done. It's not like it was 50 years ago, and I don't know. I'm not that old. And I'm, I'm not being funny. I'm just really not that. It's not like it was. It's not, something has to be done. Something has to be done. Church members will say that. And I'm like, all right. Well, I'll tell you what. On Saturday morning at like 930, we're going to meet together and go on outreach. <laughs> well, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm busy. Well, then we meet on Thursday as well just because we want to give you uh, several opportunities and not get you locked into one. So, you go, well, I'm busy then too. Uh, well, maybe like next week. Well, I'm busy then too. What about the next week? Well, I'm busy then too. And, and, and we'll have people who get all wrapped up with politics and a condition of our country. And they've been in our church over a decade and they've never had the time to go tell anybody about Jesus Christ. Now, they don't mind participating in the complaining of the condition of the culture, but they don't want to participate in what Jesus participated in, and that is leaving heaven, coming to earth, and seeking to save that which is lost. Paul said, I just want to participate in that. I want to participate in the suffering of Christ. I'm, I'm willing to give up a lot to suffer for Christ. I want to participate there's a word that we use for that. It's called empathy. June 22nd, 2016, my daughter Judith and I were in Cambodia. We went to Phnom Penh. We were in Phnom Penh with great missionary, Dave and Debbie Boyd. I look forward to taking both of my pastor friends with me, hopefully in 2020. If not then, then we'll go earlier or later. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, really? That's great. Yeah, write that down. It's going to be one of the two. Uh, if you give a demarcation line, it'll hit one of the two sides. But uh, we were there in Cambodia, and, um, and I said, hey, Dave, what are some things we should do? And I did some reading. I said, I want to see the killing fields. No doubt about it. I lived through that. Many of you lived through that. You heard it as a child. 1980, the killing fields, Cambodia. He said, he goes, Pastor, he goes, have you, um, have you ever heard about the uh, S-21. I said, no, what was S-21? He said, it was an interrogation camp. They made a high school, and if you go to Cambodia, you gotta go to this. 14,000 people were put in S-21, and um, most of them did nothing wrong, but they were tortured until they would admit to do stuff, and as we walked through this, you'd go from room to room to room to room, and it was hot outside. Oh, good grief, it was hot. If you're from San Diego, anything over 75 is hot, and it was, it was like 90, and it was 100% humidity, and it was raining, and it was just, just horrible as far as the, the temperature goes, and we walked into this room and began to read the torture that went on. We walked into another room, and Judith is with me. We walked into a third room, and they haven't moved much since then. They've kind of left it as harsh as they could. And there was a, a bed frame there with just the old wire mattress, none of the mattress pad. And then there's battery cables there, and there's uh, like the battery jumper system that you would use to jump your car. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about, the little box you jump your car. And they would literally tie people down to the bed with wire around their hands, and then they would shock them until they would admit to stuff. And we saw in there the charred remains of humans underneath that. 
those things. And we went from room to room to room to seeing that. And about halfway through, Judith just looked at me and burst into tears and ran out into the center court of that, that place called S21 and, and just began to weep and said, Dad, how evil these people were and just wept and wept and wept at the suffering that those Cambodian people went through. We took 20 people from our church back there this year. The same experience was had by every single one of them. The suffering as they sat there and wept at little children that were abused and old grandmothers that were abused and everyone in between. And as they wept, this is what I thought. They are koyaniaing present tensing the word. They are participating in the suffering that those folks went through. Paul said, I want a koinonia. I want to fellowship in. I want to participate in the suffering of Christ. I know in this church, and I, I'll take a little bit of liberty, Pastor, and I'll say this, that not everyone's going to stay here at who we call a Baptist church for the next five years. There'll be some people who transfer out. Can I tell you this, that while you're here, you need to stay here, and you need to fellowship, and you need to participate, and you need to serve Christ at this church as long as you possibly can. As long as you possibly can. I know at our church about year two that most folks live there, they start wondering where they're going to live next and what they're going to do next, and they give up fellowshipping because they're looking for the next fun thing or the next fun place. And they stand back and they stop participating in the suffering and fellowshipping in the suffering, and they start focusing on their wants and their desires and their needs and their career and the next ladder rung on the ladder to be climbed. And Paul said, listen, I gave all that up so that I could win Christ. The unwasted life. I'll finish with this illustration. If you were to come to Canyon Ridge, you'd meet a lot of folks. Somebody said to me recently, they said, Pastor, I'm selling my house. And I said, oh, that's great. Market's high, good for you. What are you gonna do? And, uh, and they said, well, I'm going to sell it. I'm going to make a lot of money off of the sale of my home, a lot of money, and the person did. And, and I said, well, what are you going to do after you sell your home? They said, well, I think we probably will just travel. So I'm going to retire in a few years, and I'll probably just travel. I said, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You're going to live your entire life and work, and now when you don't have to work anymore, you're going to live the rest. And I'm not trying to be offensive. I don't know if anybody's ever said this here or not. It, so I, I have complete anonymity. I have no idea. But I said, you're going to live the rest of your life when you have all the time in the world to serve Christ. You're going to live it to just travel and to fulfill your own desires. They said, well, Pastor, I, I mean, I guess I didn't think of it that way. I said, yeah. But you know what? Isn't that kind of the American dream? Let me work, let me retire, and let me do my thing for as long as I possibly can. Let me put as little into this so I can get the maximum amount of fun. The word suffering and the word fun are two different words. 
Matter of fact, they're at the philosophic polar opposite. I've never really suffered when surfing. The message blew the lights out. <laughs> <laughs> Thatcher's back there. <laughs> Close that thing, man. Stop messing around. <laughs> this makes me laugh. It's always at a point like that. That couldn't have happened during the music. No, right, right at the conclusion of the message, I have a story to tell. That's with Pastor King. It's my, green, my red light. I'm done. I'm done. But isn't that the way that it is? Let me just have fun. We have a guy in our church. His name is Bill. Your pastor knows him well. Bill and Linda. Bill is 65 years old. When Bill came to our church, he had been, Bill, if you, never, if you ever meet Bill, you, you, you'll think he's different. He is a little different. But he's got two master's degrees in science, and he's a lab guy. Like, he runs labs. Very successful. Got saved at 45 years old. At 55 years old, felt God called him to go to Bible college and seminary and felt like maybe God would have him in full-time ministry. And he went through Bible college and did great because he never had to talk to people. He just had to write. He's a really good writer. He's just not very good conversationally. So Bill came to our church, this guy, started coming to our church with his wife, Linda. Long story made short. Comes to our church with his wife named Linda, and he said, Pastor, I, I don't have anything to do, and I'm thinking about getting back in the career field, but if there's stuff around Canyon Ridge I can do, he goes, I, I'd love to do it. I said, well, yeah, Bill, there's always stuff you could do. He said, well, no, I mean, like, is there really stuff I could do? I'm like, sure, stuff. And so we gave him, like, clean the toilets and be faithful at that and do this. So he started coming in on Monday to clean toilets, and he, when he got done, he goes, is there anything else I could do? Well, sure, we came up with stuff. And then he'd come in on, we had, we'd take Tuesdays off, so he'd come in on Wednesday, and he'd come in on Thursday. Today, Bill is 65 years old, has a lot of money, literally has a lot of money, and so I don't mean like, like independently wealthy, but he has enough money that he could do whatever he wants for the rest of his life and be totally fine. You know what he does? 40 hours a week, he comes down to Canyon Ridge Baptist Church, and he serves. He wakes up at 4 o'clock every morning to go to class with your pastor. Uh, no, he wakes, up <laughs> he wakes up at 4 o'clock every morning and he reads his Bible. He grabs his prayer list and he prays. He prays for who we call a Baptist church more than I do. He prays every day for your pastor. He prays for you. He prays for the growth of your church. He's more excited about me being here than I was about coming, and I was jacked up about coming. He'll pray for every one of our missionaries. He contacts every missionary. Matter of fact, he contacts our missionaries so much that we made him the point man for missionaries that call. He prays for every week missionaries we don't support. He prays for over 500 missionaries a week that we don't support. He goes, Pastor, would you have a problem if I prayed for these missionaries that we don't support? I said, no, Bill, I think Jesus would be okay with that. He goes, well, I thought so, but I just thought maybe there's some reason I shouldn't pray for him. And I, I said, go back to the lab, man. Come on, what are you talking about? Bill never leaves Canyon Ridge, never leaves the property without looking at me going, Pastor, is there anything else I could do? No, Bill, I, I really don't have anything else for you to do. He goes, well, if you think of anything, you let me know. Bill's dad died recently this year. His dad was 94 years old. And they sold their, his dad's house, and he got a large amount of money as an inheritance. 
And he had lived with his dad to help take care of his dad, not far from where Debbie and I lived, about a half a mile from our house, maybe a mile from our house. So he's about four miles from the church. He's four miles from the church. And he said, Pastor, I'll tell you what I want to do. He goes, I feel like Linda and I are too far away from the church. <laughs> You're four miles, dude. It's like 13 minutes to get here in bad traffic. He goes, yeah. He goes, I, I just really feel like maybe God would have us move closer. So we're going to buy a 700-square-foot condo. They were in a 3,000-square-foot house. We're going to buy a 700-square-foot condo just so that we can be in the community that our church is in and so that we can lead people to Christ in our community, witness to them, have them in our home. And, and that way, if there's a need at the church, Pastor, we can be there in a minute or two, and you don't ever have to worry about coming in in an emergency. He said, Pastor, how do you feel about it? I said, with the, that criteria, God's in it all day long. He said, do you have to pray about it? Nope, already did. <laughs> You're praying for missionaries, I'm praying for you to move, man. That's all there is. At the end of the day, you know whose life's not wasted? Hey, I'll travel the rest of my life. You can do that. I'm not going to fault you for it. But will you live your life? Will you live your life in an unwasted fashion? Maybe tonight God's calling some of you to say, you know what, I'm just going to hunker down and I'm going to be a part of who we call a Baptist church so the Lord calls me home. Well, I got a lot of places and I got grandkids back in the mainland and I got this and I got that, okay. But will your life count like God wants it to count? I'm not trying to tell you what God wants you to do. I'm just trying to tell you live your life in a way that it will not be wasted, that when you stand before Jesus, you're not concerned about a promising future. You're not concerned about social status. You're not concerned about things of the past. You are concerned about Christ and winning Christ, the unwasted life. Can we all just tell, spend some time in prayer tonight asking God to reveal if we are wasting our lives? because he's got so much for us in this life that we have.